All right, so let me summarize the what of this series. Paul is writing this letter to a church in Corinth, and where he is now, he's currently explaining how God has uh, curated the process of knowing him. Uh, In other words, God has secured the communication of who he is so that he can really be made known. And most of this is bound up in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so what we've seen over the last few weeks is that when the Bible is open and the word is preached, that it's not just the written down words of God, but God is speaking now, that the Spirit speaks as the word is proclaimed. As Paul was preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, the Spirit was speaking as well. We also saw that this Bible in and of itself is a product of the Holy Spirit's ministry. That although it was written by men like Paul and Isaiah, these things, as, as Apostle Peter says, these men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God has not just done stuff which men wrote down, but this is some of the stuff that God has done. The book itself is part of his plan, part of his revelation, a miracle of his doing. And what we'll see tonight is that God is so committed to this, not only has he revealed himself in a book, not only does he speak as that book is utilized as the message goes forth, but he also, on our end, on the receiving end, enables us to hear. Okay? Maybe a, a working metaphor tonight would be the idea of radio transmissions. Right? right now, radio signals are flying through the air, being broadcast by radio stations. And those radio stations are broadcasting programs. And so what we see tonight, if you will, is that the Holy Spirit has created the program, he's broadcasting the signals, and now we, we find that in and of ourselves, he's also acting as the receiver. Okay? Now, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, that might be uh, confusing or irrelevant. Uh, it's definitely a lot to enter into in a little summary, but what I want you to recognize is what that means for us is that God really can be known, not speculatively, but something different than that. Okay, now that's the what, but if we just leave it there and we forget the why, then we're going to miss what Paul is really doing, okay? The letter that Paul is writing to this church in Corinth is not just a, let me tell you some thoughts I've had type letter. It's not him trying to lay out some new teaching for them. It's actually a letter of correction. He's, in fact, in this passage, trying to deal with the fact that they've become tremendously divided as a church and full of arrogance and pride, and they're in a place where basically every Christian in Corinth is going, well, I'm better than the rest of the Christians here because I speak in tongues. I'm better than the rest of the Christians here because I identify with Peter and not with Paul. Uh, there's all of these things going on in the church, and so he says, you know what, hand me that eraser, let's wipe the chalkboard clean, and let's begin again. Let's go back to the elementary understanding of exactly how it is you came to be Christians. On top of that, we're going to see tonight that not only does he address the entrance into Christianity and the Spirit's role in that, but also progress in the Christian life. Okay? So keep those two things in mind as we read together out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into the study. We're going to pick up in verse 14. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. 
For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He continues in chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. For I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it, and even now you were not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, well, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Let's pray. God, I pray that as we look at your word tonight, it would not just be an exposition or an explanation of the Spirit's working, but it would be an example of it as well. I pray that tonight we would hear what the Spirit is saying to our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed that if this passage that we just read was a play, it would have three main characters, right? There's the natural person, there's the spiritual person, and then when Paul turns to the Corinthians, he adds a third category and he says, aren't you fleshly? Aren't you just immature? Aren't you babes in Christ? These are kind of the three main characters. But instead of thinking of three types of people, I want you to think of two, two types of transition. Okay? One is from the natural to the spiritual, and the other is from the immature to the mature. That's what he's really talking about tonight. That's where the focus is. The answer, or the, the question that Paul answers in the text we're looking at tonight, is what is the greatest barrier in these two places of transition? What is the greatest hindrance to keeping you outside the walls of Christianity, and then what is the greatest thing to keep you from moving forward in the Christian life. That's what he's really dealing with. That's what happens when we couple the what of the ministry of the Holy Spirit with the why of the messed up church of Corinth. Okay? It's these two thresholds that he wants to talk about. Now let's look at the first one. Notice the first person, the first category he gives us, he calls the natural person. And clearly if you read in 14 and 15, he contrasts that with the spiritual person. So it's as if Paul says, look, there's two types of people, the natural person and the spiritual person. But I want you to recognize tonight that we live in a P.O. world. P.O. is in post-Oprah, okay? And the reason I have to bring this up is because spirituality today doesn't always mean what Paul means here. When people say, I'm very spiritual, they mean a, a couple of possible things. Maybe they mean that I'm open to the fact that there's more than just the visible and physical world. So they say, well, I'm a spiritual person because I believe in more than what I can see and more than what I can handle and touch and more than the world as we know it. Another way that that word is often used uh, is that uh, I'm open to spiritual experience. So I'm I'm open to some sort of encounter with with the unknown. I'm, I'm open is, I think, one of the words that people mean when they're spiritual. Now, this one isn't as common today, but another way this contrast between the natural and spiritual is sometimes carried out is that uh, there's normal people and then there's spiritual people, right? And so the spiritual people are some form of elite. They're an inner circle. They're the ones with the true knowledge. In fact, some churches got this so confused, didn't pay attention to the context, they said spiritual people are the rational ones, not just, you know, the hogs who go about feeding themselves and thinking about nothing uh, but how they're going to feed themselves, but the spiritual people, the ones who use their brains and read Shakespeare and, you know, smoke their pipes by the fire. This is the way this passage has been understood. Now, I'll tell you why all of these fall flat, okay? It's for two reasons. First, 
Paul's whole complaint with the Corinthian church is that all of them are trying to be in the inner circle. And so why would he come and say, well, there are spiritual people. You know, that he's not trying to say there's an upper echelon or the spiritual people are the ones who speak in tongues or the spiritual people are the ones who have the real wisdom or these types of things. If you read through chapter 1 and chapter 2, that's exactly what he's trying to contradict. That's exactly what he's trying to shut down that's going on in the church. The second reason we can know what he means here is because as he goes on and he talks about the natural person, he describes that. And as you can imagine, if you know what one part of the dichotomy is, the other falls into place. What I want you to notice is what he says in chapter 3, verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, strip that sentence out of its context for just a second and realize how weird of a statement that is. Come on, man, you're just being a human being. Why do you gotta, you know, are are you just gonna be a human? Isn't your behavior just like a person, right? That's what he seems to be saying, but that gives us the contrast, okay? When Paul, in this context, says the spiritual person, he means the person who has the Spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, as in the Spirit of God. The natural person is the person all natural, okay? So, Everybody in this sense is a natural person and his concern is with the merely natural person, the one who doesn't have the Spirit of God. That's the division that he's making here, okay? Now, let's look at the natural person. There's a few different ways you could say this. One of the things that the Bible explains happens uh, as Christians is not just that God offers us forgiveness in Jesus Christ, not just that he offers us heaven in Jesus Christ, but that he actually ascended to heaven and then sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. In other words, God has given us himself to enter into the fray of our lives and be a participant in our lives, okay? Now, that's why in just a few, few chapters, Paul is speaking to the church and he says, don't you realize that you are the temple of the Spirit of God? Don't you realize that you, church, are the place that God dwells? That in the same way in the Old Testament that the tabernacle was filled with the presence of God, we, the people, the church, have the Spirit of God as well? Okay, and so this is what he's talking about when he says spiritual. And so remember back to that progression I mentioned on God's revelation, on how God can be known. Okay, in fact, one of the things Paul says is the reason we can trust what the Spirit says through the Bible and says through the preaching of the gospel is because the Spirit knows God because the Spirit is God. The Spirit searches the deep things of God. The Spirit, uh, it, it says here, uh, look at verse 11 of chapter 2, who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So on the broadcasting end, the Spirit is present so we can be assured of the truth of the message. Here, Paul says, on the receiving end, it's the same thing. We can be assured that the communication is accurate because the Spirit is here receiving it for us. Okay? That's the difference he's trying to make. Now, let's look at the natural person as he describes it. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. One last piece of reminder is that what the Spirit has done is revealed God. And so the way Christianity understands knowing God is not that God can be discovered, if you look hard enough, not that if you go to the right place you can find God, but that God has come to find us, that God has revealed himself to mankind. 
And so what he says here is that revelation is not received by the natural man, by the man all natural, by the merely human. He says because it's foolish. Okay? What he says here is basically that uh, spiritual things seem outright crazy to non-Christians. That the gospel message itself, that what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about God and what we believe about a final judgment, that all of these things seem like craziness. Now, as a side note, this is a really good reminder. He's just making this assessment. He doesn't wring his hands about it. He says it incredibly broadly, right? He doesn't say some people are going to think you're crazy. It doesn't matter what you believe. You can find someone who thinks you're off your rocker. He just says people. People are going to think you're crazy. People are going to find what you believe in Christianity to be foolish. And here's why this is important. Because every once in a while, that makes us terribly nervous. It makes us feel like we're doing something wrong. It makes us feel like, well, if we could just make Christianity a little less foolish, maybe we could downplay the crazy and, and share with them the things that are overlapping. But remember here, especially if you've been with us in this study, that's the Corinthians' problem. They're trying to assess Christianity through the wisdom of Corinth. They're trying to take the popular way of thinking and the way that everybody thinks and fit Christianity into that paradigm. When it's something greater than that, something bigger, it won't fit in that box. And so the point that I'm trying to make here is simply this. That when we get caught in the place of trying to rationalize and argue and present a a safer and easier to receive Christianity, we're making the same mistake here as people do from the outside. See what I mean in just a second, because Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say people don't accept Christianity because it sounds crazy. He goes further. Notice what he says next. All right, so let's read it through again. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So it's not just that they don't accept them, it's that they cannot accept them. Now, recognize that that's a much different statement. We've transitioned here from opinion to ability. We've transitioned from the process of how things appear to the possibility of them appearing any differently. Okay? The line that Paul has just crossed is the difference between somebody, um, somebody who just doesn't want to see things the way you see them and a blind person. What he says here is they don't have the receptacle. Right? He says they cannot understand these things. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Don't lose the meaning of that word spiritual. They don't have the receiver. They don't have the piece of gear. And so you say to them, you want to know what the radio station told me today? And you tell them, and they're like, radio station? Signals flying through the air? That's crazy. I've never heard anything. If you're hearing voices, you should go see a doctor, right? That's the distinction that Paul is making. Now, this is probably making some of us uncomfortable, and it should. Because the line that's drawn here is a very big one. But what is he trying to say? He's saying that there's something missing There's something necessary to make the gospel understandable, to make Christianity to make sense. And what he says here is it's the work of the Spirit. What he says here is that without the Spirit of God, Christianity is not possible to understand. Now, I want to be really clear here. Especially if you go back and you read this whole passage starting in verse 6 all the way through the end of chapter 2 through, 
and you think about all the things he said, it reads as if if a non-Christian were to open a Bible and read it, the grammar wouldn't make sense. It just, you know, the words would jump around on the page. Or, or maybe the, the stories in the gospel, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to follow the plot or, or something like that. That's not what he's saying here. What he's recognizing is that without the Spirit of God, you may be able to know about God according to the Bible, but we're talking about knowing God. Can I help you understand the difference? All of you know about our president, President Obama, but I think probably very few of you know him, right? This is the difference. Now, let me be really clear. It's become very popular to say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And although I appreciate the sentiment, I hate the saying uh, because it's, it's confusing and it's a silly dichotomy. But what they're trying to express is what Paul is pointing out here. That God doesn't just want to be known about, he wants to be known. And the way that he's done that in Christianity is that he's brought himself to you. To reside in you, okay? To, to secure that process so that you can actually know God. Now, Now we have a good understanding of the threshold of the cross, of the gate. Listen, here's what I'm trying to say. That the difference between the natural and the spiritual person, that the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is not one of continuity. Here's what I mean. You can't think about Christianity as addition. Well, yes, I'm just my normal self, and I've added to myself church on Sunday. I've added to myself reading my Bible. I've added these things. You also can't do it by means of subtraction. It's not, yes, what Christianity is, is just me, except I've stopped doing these things, and I no longer do these things, and I avoid these things, okay? The way the Bible talks about it, it's not more, or it's not continuity. There's not more in common with then and now. There's less. It's a discontinuity. In fact, the metaphors that Jesus and the New Testament authors use for conversion are extremely drastic, from darkness to light. Okay? Now, I recognize that some of you have those, those dimmer switches, and so that feels like a gradient. It feels like you can move that very naturally, but first century world and in light and darkness in general, it's either or, right? And let me ask you this. If all you have in a box is darkness, how long do you have to wait till it becomes light? It's not a thing, right? There's no continuity. It's an interruption. It's a drastic change. It's a transformation. Another metaphor it uses is even stronger, from death to life. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive in Jesus Christ. When have we ever observed the natural process of the dead becoming alive? Right? It's not a continuity. It's not more of the same. It's not slightly modified. It's a drastic change. Probably nobody put this stronger than Jesus. And if you were here a few months ago for our study on on the things that were most important to Jesus, this is what he says to Nicodemus in John chapter, chapter 3. He says, if you want to know God, if you want to experience God, if you want to interact with God, you must be born again. And that means two things that are very, very intriguing. The first is, your life as you know it is not enough. That everything that has come from your first birth didn't add up to sufficient to know God. You need another birth. And then the second thing is, by choosing the metaphor of birth, that's not something you can do for yourself. It's not something you can sign up for or learn in a class. It's not something you can do, give birth to yourself. And so that's why he speaks so extremely while he's on earth and says, listen, the way to God is narrow, and the way that goes wrong is very broad. 
That's why it says strive to enter the narrow gate, because there's a massive gulf, a huge discontinuity. Here, he says, it's the difference between you as you are and the presence of the Spirit of God. Now, listen. Now we're ready to answer the question, what is the greatest barrier to becoming a Christian? What's the line to cross? And ultimately, it's very simply pride. Now let me unpack that. Let me explain why I say that. Because many of us come, or came, if you're already a Christian, came to Christianity assuming that you had what it takes to become a Christian. I've got the knowledge and the intelligence to make a uh, a reasonable assessment of the evidence and determine if Christianity is true. Or I've got the discipline to learn the ways of Jesus and then follow them. Or I've got the character to impress God so that he gives me a free pass into relationship with him. All of those are false attempts because they're all just being merely human. And what the gospel communicates is not here, mankind, here's how you fix your relationship with God, but it's too late for that. It can't be fixed. The problem that we as humankind got ourselves into can't be gotten out to with more humankind. Any more than you can put out a fire with the same fuel you ignited it with. Okay? What's needed here is an intervention. What's needed here is something from the outside. What he says here is that effectively you are not enough for Christianity. And the problem The problem is so often we think about these things and it's our self-sufficiency that actually is both we feel like our greatest trait and it's our greatest, uh, it's our greatest setback in understanding how Christianity works. We need to be saved. That's the implication of the word saved, right? It means somebody else has to do it because I can't. And what Paul is saying here is that that's what the Spirit's role is, okay? That it's not about if you have the intelligence or, you know, if you were born in the right area of the world to be exposed to these things or if you were raised right by your parents that ultimately, he says, you want to know the difference? It's the Spirit. Spiritual people understand the people of God because God is doing the understanding with them, okay? Now, if you're not a Christian tonight, what does that mean for you? As we've seen these last couple of weeks, it means ultimately you've got to change your game plan. You've got to come at Christianity looking and asking for God to reveal himself, asking for his help, even in knowing him, stopping this idea that says my perspective and my intelligence And my character is all I need. I am completely sufficient to know. Now, there is a positive to that very negative truth. And that's the fact that God desires to be known so much that he has an answer for that. That he wants to be known. That he knows that you're incapable. If if we could go back to the metaphor of blindness. That's what Paul has basically said. He said, God wants to show you who he is, but the whole of humanity is blind. But what did we see in Jesus' ministry that he was in the business of giving sight to the blind? Okay. Now, Christians, this is just as an important point for you. 
because we have a terrible tendency to try and think that the primary distinction between us and them is something great about us, right? We were smart enough to know that this is the right way. We were good enough that God chose us. We, you know, we put it all on ourselves. And Paul's trying to say, Corinthians, where's your boasting coming from when God has come into your life? He has interfered in the game. You know, he has written himself into the story and changed your destiny. And so when we look at other people and we go, I just can't believe they can't get it. Or don't, can they not look at their lives and see all these things going on? The answer that Paul is giving us is no. No, they can't. And so the way we pray for them is, God, just help them get their act together. No, it's God, intervene. God, reveal yourself. Spirit, speak. It's, once again, we've seen week after week as we've been moving through this book, a change in the way we think about things. Now, he continues on, and he talks about the spiritual person, okay? Us as Christians, this is what he says in verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one, okay? Now, I think we can all recognize in a single reading how dangerous a statement like that is, right? That sounds like a justification for a cult leader. Well, I can tell everybody what to do, and nobody can tell me what to do. Let me help you out, okay? First off, the word here for judged was just used. And it's translated with a different word. When it says that the natural man cannot receive these things because they are spiritually discerned, exact same word, okay? That gets us a little bit closer here. He's not talking about judgment in terms of sitting on a throne and determining what to do with somebody's life. He's talking about discernment. In fact, here's where I'm the happiest in Uh, in paraphrasing the sentence to make it understanding. Listen to it this way. He says, um, the spiritual person understands all things, but is himself to be understood by no one. Okay? That, I think, is what Paul's trying to express. What he's saying here is that because we have the Spirit, the Spirit understands everything the Spirit is saying. Have you ever had the opportunity to... um, to read a friend's letter in their presence, just in one setting or another, or listen to something they said, and you go, now, now what did you mean by that, right? That's the opportunity. That's the possibility that he presents here. And he says, we are equipped to understand the things of the Spirit because we have the Spirit, okay? And he says, at the same time, we are understood by no one. And that should be a one-to-one proposition. If the spiritual things are foolishness, the way we respond to them, the way we live our lives is a head-scratcher to the world. Once again, you shouldn't be surprised. Some of you, if you became Christians as as adults, apart from your family, may have already experienced this. Your family's like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? I don't understand what's going on with you, right? This is the reality that Paul is talking about. Now, he doesn't explain why he points this out until the next verse, but what I want you to get here is this distinction between living an understandable life and the outside world. Now, listen to what he says next. Verse 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? He quotes out of the book of Isaiah. Now, just that statement under its own, can you understand what he's saying? He's saying, Who knows enough to be the Lord's counselor? Who wants to sign up for the debate team versus God? Now, even if you don't believe in God tonight, just beg the question with me for a second. If God is really God, 
And by definition, he's all-knowing, all-powerful, completely sovereign. Do you really want to argue with him? Do you really want to debate? Do you really want to sit down and go, oh, you know that move? I think you would have been better to do it this way. That's what Isaiah is trying to say. He's saying, if God is really God, then who's going to be his counselor? Who's going to be the one who's going to correct the places where his thinking's a little bit, you know, average? But why is he saying it here? Notice what he says next. He says, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, there's something you can't see in the English text here that I want to point out. Paul seems to be familiar both with the Hebrew Bibles that we have today, as well as the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint. Most of the time, he quotes the Septuagint. Here, he quotes the Masoretic text, the Hebrew one, but it's intriguing because in the Greek, it doesn't say we have the mind of Christ, it says we have the Ruach, the Spirit of Christ. And so it seems here like he's left a little nugget of wisdom even underneath. Why do we have the mind of Christ? Because we have the Spirit. He says, I'm not telling you anything new here. This is exactly what God said would happen, according to Isaiah. But why is he saying it? He's recognizing the fact that although there are lots of things that you can learn from the world, that you shouldn't take instruction on how to live your Christian life from them. And in today's day and age where, frankly, to be honest, the church is making a billion mistakes in the culture wars, right? We are responding by maximizing the minimals. We are responding with clear hatred, ignoring the love that we're called to. All of these things are true, and I don't want to downplay them. But there is a baby in the bathwater scenario that goes, it's so hostile, we should probably just let them tell us what an acceptable witness looks like. We should let them tell us how it is we're supposed to behave. And, and Paul is basically just saying here, remember, if you go back and read the chapter, you'll see this to be the case, the limits of their perspective are always going to make these things look foolish. Here's one of the ways he applies it later. Later in the book of Corinthians, he says, I hear many of you who have problems with one another are going to the government into their courts and, suing, and are suing one another. He says, why are you doing that? Why are you going to the world to be a judge? He says, do you not have anyone in your church who has the spirit, who can act as, a, you know, as an arbiter and decide how things should be done? And the reason is because there's so much more on the table, right? Jesus says that there's a love that everybody understands, but the love that he calls us to as Christians is different. Doesn't he rebuke his disciples? And he says, you, you say that you're good because you love someone who loves you, but don't even the Gentiles, don't even outsiders do that? Isn't that just human nature? He says, instead, be like your Father in heaven who sends rain on the good and the evil alike, who gives good to the good and the evil alike. That standard changes our behavior, right? It doesn't come down to our rights. It doesn't come down to how we were treated. In fact, doesn't Jesus say in that same chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, he says if somebody takes, you know, robs you at gunpoint and takes, takes your cloak, offer him your sweatshirt as well. My paraphrase, of course. Isn't that what Jesus says? Look, let me nail this down with one more quote. George MacDonald, who was one of the great spiritual grandfathers of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in fact, said, I never wrote a word I didn't steal from George MacDonald. He says this, Men would seek to understand, but they rarely seek to obey. When in actuality, in the Christian life, it is merely through obedience that we learn to understand. And he illustrates it this way. He says, Jesus says when somebody slaps you to turn the other cheek. Do you really think you can figure that out by having a think tank with some friends? Discovering why that's the right thing to do? He says, no, but if you do it, then you learn it. 
Then you understand it. Then you make sense of it. Okay? Now, it's a little off topic, but rem- let me remind you of the point here. The point is here that this division between natural and spiritual, between before Christ and after Christ, is a drastic one. And the greatest hindrance to it is pride. Now, he doesn't stop there. He continues on. And he kind of creates a third category. It's more of a subcategory. It's not natural, spiritual, and carnal. It's natural and spiritual, and in the context of spiritual, aren't you behaving carnally? Now, this is what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Remember, that was Paul's, uh, Paul's goal when he was with them. As he lays out, he says, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I stuck to the foolish, even though you thought it was foolish, because I know that the foolishness of God is better than the wisdom of men. These are the things he's been saying. And here he says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, that word there for people of the flesh is being used as an adjective, as fleshly people. And so it's not just natural people, but behaving like natural people. That's what he's trying to express. And notice here that he's not saying that they aren't saved or that they don't have the Spirit. In fact, what does he call them in the opening vocative address there? But I, brothers, brothers and sisters, in fact, is what it says in the Greek. He sees them as family. And let me just remind you that Paul has no dog in the, in the race of the Corinthian church. Okay? He's not a Gentile. He's not from Corinth. He doesn't have any family there. He's a Jew. He calls them brothers because in Christ, that's what they are. They are in Christ, just like Paul. And he says, but when I came, you were still fleshly. Specifically, he says, as infants in Christ. Now, I don't think that's really that surprising of a statement uh, because that's how everything begins, right? We don't just step into something and understand all of it and do it perfectly in these types of things. We start like babies, and we grow in maturity, okay? And so if you study a foreign language, you start like a baby does, right? Just grasping the nouns of the things around the room, and then the grammar and all of these things come later. It's the same really in anything. You pick up a new sport, and you play like a little kid at first, right? But you grow in your ability and your understanding of the game. The Christian life, in one sense, is the exact same way. If Jesus said you must be born again, is it that surprising that what happens next is comparable to being a baby. In fact, when Paul says this here, he doesn't say it with any form of vitriol or concern. He's not saying, man, I can't believe that I had to put up with you guys like little babies. That's not what he's saying here, okay? He's not your mean and slightly older brother. He's just recognizing that that's the way things are. And it is the way things are. Maybe some of you are new Christians. Maybe others of you have forgotten this. But I still remember what it was like in the first year of my life as a Christian, and it was insane. Like, all of my problems seemed so deep and so crazy. I didn't always know which way was up. I didn't always understand how to move forward. I knew very little of this book right here. And people would bring things up like they were common knowledge, and I'd go, wait, what? You know, there were times where I would read things I was not supposed to be doing as a Christian and go, really? I had no idea. Right? That's exactly what you would expect. That's where we all begin. But the problem with the Corinthian church is that not only did they begin there, but they stayed there. Listen to what Paul says here. He says in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you were not ready with it. Now, also, that's understandable. Here, let, let me paraphrase it for you. If you're a new Christian, don't pick up John Calvin's 
1,000-page institutes and go, this is where I should start, okay? He, he recognizes here that when we feed babies, they don't eat the same things we do. We give them milk because they are teeth-free, right? They, they don't have what they need for solid foods. And so he says, when I came among you, I stuck with the basics. I kept it simple. Now, once again, I want to save you from a misunderstanding. Paul is not saying that there is Christianity as the outsiders know it, as the lower caste knows it, and then there's the real thing. In fact, most commentators would point out here that he's really trying to make a distinction between method and not message. He's not saying, I didn't tell you the real secrets of Christianity. He's saying, I kept Christ and him crucified simple. There's plenty of depth there. You know, the author of Hebrews does the same thing. He talks to the the Hebrews that he's writing to, and he talks about giving them milk when they should be having solid food. And the way he compares it is really interesting because he makes a contrast between what Jesus did while he was on earth and Jesus' current ministry. So it's things like the fact uh, that Jesus died for you versus the fact that he now ever lives to make intercession for you. The fact that Jesus forgave you of your sins and you're going to heaven to the fact that Jesus is working in your life right now from the fact that Jesus died for you to the fact that you have died with Christ. That's kind of the distinction that the author of Hebrews draws between these things. But what I want you to recognize, it's still Jesus. Okay? There's um, There's no undergrad work where you get to the real business. If any of you have gone to college, you've noticed the MO of colleges. It's basically everything you know is wrong, so we're going to delete it and start fresh. That's not the case in Christianity. Like we go from infancy to maturity, we go from shallowness to depth. Okay? So it's not that Jesus is the ABCs of Christianity. He's the A to Z. But there's a lot to learn. Okay? This is what Paul's saying. So he came as milk. Once again, totally natural. He says, you were not able for anything more than milk, but here's the problem. He says, the tail end of verse 2, and even now you are not yet ready. Okay? I have an almost one-year-old daughter. The fact that she wakes me up in the night does not make me angry. The fact that we constantly have to, or my wife constantly has to nurse her, the fact that we change her diapers, none of that is a big deal. Now, if that's how it was with my 10-year-old boy, we'd be in a different place, right? If he was coming to me to explain, hey, Dad, I, I know you're busy right now, but could you just stop and change my diaper, please? There's a disconnect there that's frustrating, right? This is the problem in the Corinthian church. They've grown in some places. They they have a better understanding of the spiritual gifts. They've got some knowledge, but there's this massive gap in maturity. And so here's the question I bring to you again. In moving forward in the Christian life, what is the greatest barrier to this? What is the hindrance to the Corinthians? What's holding them back another year in Christ school? Okay, what's going on here? The complaint here is that they weren't ready. He says, look at this in verse 3. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? Here's where he says they went wrong. He says, you're still jealous. You're still fighting. In fact, he goes on in verse 4 and he says, you're still being divisive. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Listen. This is where the line is, okay? So the complaint he gives here is, I can't believe you guys aren't, you know, are so dumb you can't pass your lessons. He doesn't say, I can't believe you don't have the intelligence to move forward. What he says is, you're still acting 
with all of this selfishness. You're still, you know, elbowing people to get to the top of the food chain. You're still jealous of those who have already arrived. What's interesting here, and what we've got to be careful of, is this looks like an external problem, a me and them problem, a me versus everyone else problem. It looks like fighting here, but there's something under the surface here. This is where James, the apostle, is very helpful. If you've got the Bible still open, turn to the book of James. It's to the right, past the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 4, this is what James says. Now, I have a confession to make. This passage in James is a complex one. James is, I think, for me, one of the hardest authors to understand in the New Testament. But what I want you to recognize tonight is just that the passage I'm about to read is one passage. Okay? So it sounds like he's just got some sort of theological Tourette's. He's just all over the place. Like he's got, um, you know, some sort of... uh, some sort of issue, and he's just compiling all these things as they come to mind. That's not what's going on. He has one theme, and what he's doing is basically drilling down into the basement, and then into the sub-basement, and then into the foundation itself. Now listen to what he says here in chapter 4. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Sound similar? He says, you want to know where this comes from? Look at what he says. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Listen, if you want to understand all the conflict in your life, if you're constantly butting heads with a roommate, if you've got people in your family that you've never reconciled with, if strife and jealousy uh, and conflict and division are parts of your life normally, what James says here is the problem is not that war. Those are just civilian casualties of a different war, an internal one. He says, isn't it because your desires are at war in your heart? Look, he explains further. He says here in verse 2, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says, even when you take the things you want to prayer, it's hijacked by the fact that only reason you want it is because of those desires again, right? You see how it comes full circle? You're stuck in the hamster wheel, he says. But he goes deeper. He doesn't stop with desires. He says it's deeper than desires. Notice what he says next in verse 4. You adulterous people. Is he changing topics? Is there some sort of direct relationship between the behavior of adultery, of cheating on a spouse, and conflict and jealousy? No. He means spiritually adulterous. What he says here is that those desires are not evil desires. They're good things. They're normal things, but they've become ultimate things, and that makes you an adulterer against against God as your husband, okay? He's talking about idolatry. He's saying what happens in your heart is that really good things become ultimate things, and then people around you become either an ends to get that thing, and so you step on them and manipulate them and do what you have to, or they become an obstacle to get that thing, and so you do whatever you have to to get them out of the way. That's not their problem. It's yours, and it comes down to your heart. Once, once again, it's good things. Imagine this. Imagine you're driving home from work and you've got a family with kids and, and what you really, really want, what you really need is peace, quiet, rest. And you come into the house and any of you who are parents know that doesn't always happen. That anger that wells up in you, it's not your kid's fault. It's because the most important thing in your life right now is peace. And if you don't get it, you're going to get angry and you're probably going to get even. Okay? He continues on and he digs the well deeper. 
He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Interesting. Isn't that an overlap with what we've been reading? He says here that the spirits right there on the front lines, we'll come back to that, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you see what the, what, the, what the foundation that the whole house is built on is? It's pride. It's the same thing. Except instead of this time being self-sufficiency that says, I'm enough for God, this is self-centeredness. It says, I get to determine what's best for my life, and I will be judge, jury, and executioner for anyone who stands in the way of those things. Right? It says, what I need now most is this, and so God becomes a divine dispenser of your will. In some of the versions of the Lord's Prayer, it finishes this way. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. When this happens in your heart, it changes that. Mine is the kingdom. I make the rules. Mine is the power. I do it in my strength. Mine is the glory. I do it so everybody knows how great I am. Okay? That's the war that's really going on in your heart. And what he says here is that uh, that, that pride produces all of these terrible thorns in your life. The byproduct of this is how poorly we treat one another. Now listen, take that back to Corinthians for, for, instant, for a second and let's answer the question. What is it that hinders maturity in the Christian life? It's pride. Okay? It's pride. It's making yourself out to be God and determining what you get and what you want and how to get there and these types of things. Okay? Now first off... That's really good news. I don't know where all of you have come from, but I know some of you have come from hard places. And you look around and you see other Christians and you go, man, they just had better upbringings. They come from a more respectable place. I could never be a Christian like them. My struggles seem so unique to me. It's not a concern of Paul's. He says, that's not going to hold you back. Others of you might listen to people talk about Christianity or, you know, I have a friend, um, I have a friend when he became a Christian, he'd read one book, Green Eggs and Ham. That was the only one before he'd ever read the Bible. He went on to plant and grow the largest church, evangelical church in Europe. He knew God. He still does. He humbles me all the time by the way that he knows God. His intelligence was not a limitation. You want to know the thing that stands between you and moving forward in the Christian life? It's you. That's all. And like I said, that's tremendously good news, but it is a game changer. Because what he says here is that the way that you deal with your pride is you humble yourself. I can give that another word. It's one the Bible uses all the time. It's the word repentance. Listen, you know when you have those how am I doing conversations as a Christian? When you try and measure how far you've come or or where you're at in your Christian life, the metric you use for measurement, is it the right one? Because here's the ones that I find in myself all the time. One is, well, I've been doing a lot of the right things, or, well, I've been doing less of the bad things, so I must be growing. 
careful. That's how the Pharisees thought, right? Well, I keep all the rules, so I'm, I must be the mature one, right? You know another one? Comparison. Comparison is a very constant metric of how we're doing in the Christian life, isn't it? Well, at least I'm doing better than that guy, right? Uh-uh. There's only met one metric that the Bible supplies for growth in the Christian life, and it's repentance. When Martin Luther penned his 95 theses, these 95 complaints he had against the Catholic Church, 95 places he desired to see reform, he began it with this statement, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. What he was saying is progress in the Christian life is made through repenting, through surrendering your sin, through recognizing that you've fallen short and turning away again. If that's not happening in your life, is it any surprise that the next thing that happens is just terrible conflict with other people? In fact, just notice that. We would like the measurement, the metric to be related to our relationship with God in ways that we could, you know, well, I fast longer than I used to. I read my Bible more faithfully than I used to. I pray for hours and hours, so I must be one of the, one of the mature. I must be one of the inner circle. That's what the church in Corinth was doing. I speak in tongues all the time. I have all of these attributes. I've, I've even considered giving up marriage and being single the rest of my life, so I must be mature, right? Uh-uh. It is so possible when our humility is self-centered and self-driven for it to just be another piece of clothing for our pride. In Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, he says this about the convent, the place where nuns and monks are. He says, the convent is, a, is the world's greatest contradiction, the greatest expression of pride clothed, clothed in the greatest expression of humility. We are so capable of that without repentance. Okay. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what sums it all up. Oftentimes we think about becoming a Christian in terms of receiving Jesus or believing in Jesus, and all of that is accurate. But let me explain how it was a little bit different for me. Okay? I grew up in the church. I knew the truths. Um, be- way, years before I became a Christian, I could have quoted to you all of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, John 3.16, I knew all of the doctrines, I knew all these things, but I did not know God, okay? And what happened was, one day as I came into high school, suddenly the Spirit was working, and the Spirit was speaking, and this wasn't just a book, it was God revealing himself to me, and there was a hunger to know God, and there was all these things going on at once, and it all led up to a night where I was tossing and turning in bed, and I was feeling this great tension between two places. One was who I said I was versus who I really was, right? The way I saw myself between, uh, against the way the light of Scripture was starting to show who I really was, all of my hypocrisy and stuff like this. And on the other end was who I thought God was and who I was discovering him to be. And I was in so much turmoil out of this, I couldn't get sleep, and I, I rolled out of bed onto the floor, and this is the prayer that I prayed. This is as close as I have to a sinner's prayer. God, this is the life that I've made. This is the mess that I've created. I don't want to do this anymore. It's yours. One of the great synonyms for repentance is surrender. Surrender is a massive part of how we become Christians because it says, I can't do this, you must. And it's the same every day in your Christian life. 
It's the waving of the white flag on the battlefield of your life. You may have not known that you're the enemy of God, but did you notice that's what James was trying to get across? Don't you know that friendship with the world? Don't you know that lifting up anything else in the universe and saying, this is where meaning comes from, this is what gives me value, this is what shows me goodness, this is what I worship, is a direct declaration of war against the one true God? He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? You may not have known you're fighting that war, but the right thing to do is not to keep firing bullets because it's not fair. You didn't know you were fighting. The right thing to do is as quick as you can, wave the white flag and surrender. And what progress in the Christian life looks like, it's going back to the treaty tent and going, I just realized I had more property that I've been holding. I've just realized I've got more things to, to give over to you. I've just realized that I've you know, picked up my armaments again. Repentance, surrender, that's where progress is in the Christian life. And I will tell you this, if you have that glorious and beautiful moment where you see your life as it really is, whether you're not a Christian or whether you are and you're just stagnant, you've just hit the threshold and can't seem to get past fifth grade, when that moment comes, the foot blocking the door into the next room will be your own. It'll be your pride. It'll be the desire that you have to be God who dictates your life, who rewards you for what is good, who punishes you for what is evil. That's part of it too. Surrender in the Christian life is progress. And I'll give you just one reason I know that to be the case. Because God's great plan to save the world was an act of surrender. God becoming man living a life, obeying the law, learning obedience, the author of Hebrews says, by the things he suffered, submitting fully to God, even to the point of death, Paul says in Philippians. And even there, he surrendered himself to the evil of men and the evil of everything else. And there, that's where God worked. Let's pray. Father, we are so prone to pride, it's possible to read about the Corinthian church and go, those knuckleheads, I'm so glad. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those Corinthians. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those crazy Galatians. When in actuality, this book was written to speak to us because we're just like them. And we struggle to be merely human. And you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. In fact, this war that's going on in our hearts is your war. You jealously are fighting, James says, for the spirit that's within us. You've gotten behind enemy lines and you're working against us, but for our good. I pray, Lord, that you teach us how to surrender more and more. That we would recognize that there's a sense where the only way to move forward in the Christian life is to move backwards. or Sometimes not to move at all, to stand still and see the salvation of God. And I pray as we worship tonight, Lord, you would continue this process, that we would ask tonight not how am I doing based on how other people are doing or how am I doing based on these good things or these bad things, but when was the last time I repented? When was the last time I was made aware of my sin and responded with surrender? That's what growth looks like in the Christian life. I pray that you'd lead us in growth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.